Thanks, Zoe. It's uh, always good for us to be reminded of how good and great God is, and, and it seems that nature is always pointing us in that direction, to be reminded again of, of the goodness and the graciousness of God, and, and that's an important thing to remember as we talk about transformation, and that's what we're going to talk about today as we go into Second uh, Kings chapter 5 is where we're going to be spending all of our time. So you've got a Bible, you want to hang out there, um, that's where we're going to be going. Um, and this is one of the 60% of the times when I was able to make my phone work. So this is great. Um, Connor made that joke earlier this week, and I, I laughed very hard. Uh, Second Kings 5. Uh, Connor made a joke earlier this week on social media about uh, my uh, phone working, and I laughed really hard, and then I cried for a little bit. Uh, but then I laughed again, so it's okay now. Uh, I'm... I'm learning not to hold a grudge. Uh, no. um, so we're talking about transformation. And the big thing that we're going to be talking about today as we look at this, this story of Naaman in, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 5 is we're going to be talking about barriers to transformation, right? So we're talking about uh, taking an accurate self-assessment. We talked about having some goals of where we want to go. We're making some experience with some habits. What, but the reality is as soon as you undertake any sort of process in your life that is going to transform you, even if it's in any way, it's going to be hard. There's going to be barriers that come your way. If that's just something as silly as like, I want to change my own habits, or if you want to go further to the deep level, heart level transformation by being transformed by the renewing of your mind that we're hoping for, there's going to be barriers to that. Human beings don't like change. We just don't. We like to stick where we are, and it says that, you, and I've read that you need to do something 21 times in a row in order for it to be a habit. I've read 34 times in a row. It doesn't matter. It's very difficult to change who and what we are, and it's very, and especially for the kind of transformation we're looking for, it's easier to change your habits and then not have the core of who you are changed at all. This is why Jesus said to the Pharisees that, he, he, he criticized them in, uh, in Matthew 23 for, by saying, Woe to you, Pharisees and teachers of the law. You cross land and sea to win a single convert, convert, and then you make him twice the son of hell that you are. So they go cross land and sea. They convince someone to change all their behaviors, but nothing about them internally has changed. And Jesus is saying, this doesn't matter. This, you've made them worse. So... As, as we go through this story of Naaman, I think that we're going to see the things that are going to pop up as we go forward that, that are going to try and push us back from transformation. Okay, so we're going to tell the story of Naaman. The story of Naaman is interesting. Now, Naaman was commander of the army and king of Aram. The, sorry, uh, the, the can, can, commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given a victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, uh, but he had leprosy. Now, so all of a sudden we've got an interesting place. This is Naaman. He is from Aram. He is not Jewish. And in fact, when he is a military leader of Aram and the Lord gave him a great victory, that means that the Lord gave him a great victory over Israel. 
right? So he is known for, for winning battles against Israel, and he has leprosy, which makes him on the outside, but he's a skilled and valiant soldier. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone and taken, a cap, taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife, and she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet is in Samaria, who would cure, he would cure him of his leprosy. So this is interesting. Naaman is a foreign military leader in conflict with you, even though there was a truce right now. He had been in conflict with you in the past. He owns Israelite slaves. He has a skin disease, which makes him unclean. And yet in the midst of this, a young girl says, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So this is an interesting context because the natural thing for a person of Naaman's statue, uh, sta uh, stature sorry, and his position and his ethnicity would be to say, would be one never to hear this. Why would he be paying attention to his wife's slave girl anyway? But even if he did happen to hear this, to completely ignore it. That would be the normal thing for Naaman to do. But Naaman does something very different. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said, and then uh, had said, by all means, go, the king of Aram surprised, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, all of a sudden, we've crossed this crazy barrier where Naaman listens to a young slave girl and then goes to his boss and says, like, hey, maybe these people that we're at, at a truce with, but remember the people that we were at war with just like a little bit ago? They apparently have somebody who might be able to heal me. And then the king of Aram says, okay, well, I'll give you 6,000, uh, left taking with him uh, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of clothing. And the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. The king sends him out to another king saying that he's going to cure him from his letter, leprosy. But there's something interesting that you want, I want you to notice because this is all part of the same thing. To whom does the king of Aram send Naaman with this letter? The king of Israel, right. Who was supposed to heal Naaman? The prophet, right. This is interesting. Even though both men have heard this, even though both men know that they're supposed to go to the prophet, they're not sent with a letter that says, that says, please direct my servant to the prophet that's going to heal him. He sends him to the king of Israel and says, you heal him. Now, what's interesting is how much they're willing to break their own rules, but how little they are to break this one, and they're still expecting that obviously the king is going to be the one who heals. And I think that this is an interesting point for us because one of the biggest barriers I think that we're going to have to our transformation uh, as individuals and as a, as a church, is protocol. That we're going to hear a story of transformation and then in our minds we're going to think like, yeah, but that's not how we do things here. That's not how we do things now. We don't, we don't one, listen to slave girls. We don't uh, go and find prophets in other lands. We have to go through the king. That is the protocol of how these things go. We have to pay him off, and then the cure is located. The protocol of this, uh, that's completely inappropriate. 
So I want to thank you for being here, and I want to thank you for participating, but that's completely inappropriate, so we can't have any more outbursts like that, okay? Thank you. Okay. So sometimes, this protocol just means the way that we do things, and sometimes protocol promotes and prolongs our pain rather than freeing us from it. That we're choosing the way that we've done things, and in choosing the way that we've done things, we're continuing the patterns of, of bad behavior that have brought us to where we are. Protocol can promote and prolong our pain and prevent us from going on and doing what we've been instructed to do. The protocol is that Naaman has to go to the king, and that inserts a further step between him and the person who is going to find uh, who is going to lead him to his healing. Because as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. This is really interesting to me. So now all of a sudden the king of Israel thinks that the king of Aram is trying to pick a fight with him. That's the only thing that he can think of, that this military leader must have been sent here in order that this mission would fail, he would go back, and now they have an excuse to break their treaty and to attack Israel again. And this is frightening for him because Aram at this point has a, uh, has a, has a military uh, has, a, has a military advantage. So this is really fascinating to him that the only thing that he can think of as he sees this request is that, is that I don't know how to do this. No one I know knows how to, how to do this. I don't know how this is going to, to, to work out. And obviously this is the world conspiring against me to destroy me. It's interesting how sometimes the barrier to transformation for other people and for ourselves is a simple failure of imagination. We can't imagine that things will ever be different, so how could things ever be different? We can't imagine that a difficulty is arising because God has brought us out to demonstrate his goodness to us and his glory, so we can't, so we can't imagine that this would be, that this would be working to, in, our, in our favor. We can't imagine how this could happen, and the idea of, of, of this thing that God has brought about, a foreign leader coming and asking for healing is not an all an opportunity for the king to see the Lord work. It's not an opportunity to God show up, for God to show up in a way that he hasn't expected before. The only thing that he can imagine it being is something intent on his destruction. And how often do we limit our own ability to trans, be transformed just because we cannot imagine it? How often do we do this for other people? That we meet someone or we've known someone for a very long time who has habits that disagree with us, or they've let us down over and over and over again, and they come and they want to begin to make a life change, and we can't imagine them any different, so we never treat them any different. We're guilty of this as well, that one of the biggest barriers to transformation can be a failure of imagination. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message, why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. 
And Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Now, this is really interesting to me that, 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 that this is where Elisha starts out, that his, he, he, when he hears that the king is in distress, he doesn't meet the king in his distress, right? So the king's torn his clothes. He's like, everything is terrible. Everything is dangerous. Elisha doesn't say, yes, everything is terrible and dangerous, but I have a way out of it. He, Elisha shows up and says, no, it's not. Why are you freaking out? Relax. Like, send this guy to me. I, I will take care of it. Then he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And it's interesting. So the way that Elisha treats Naaman is some ways interpreted as Elisha being rude, right? Because it says that, Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. That sounds rude to us, right? A guy has come to your door. He said like, hey, can I have some healing? You even sent for him, and then you don't even go talk to him. You just send a messenger to talk to him. That seems kind of rude, except that Naaman had leprosy, which is a contagious disease, and this is the way that you treat people who have a contagious disease in the Old Testament, okay? They would have stood at a different distance and said, you are all uh, sick and possibly contagious. We don't want to take that into our house, so, so we will talk to you uh, from a distance. The same way, like, if someone has a, a, a contagious illness, sometimes they stay home from work and work remotely, right? It's the exact same thing. I don't want y'all's germs all over me, so uh, you all stay back there, and do what I tell you to do, and, and everything will, will work out. So, but it's interesting. Naaman knows this. Everybody knows that this is how you're supposed to treat a person with a contagious disease. But how does Naaman respond? Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. It's very interesting. He was like, I wanted healing, and I wanted it in my way. And I wanted it with the production values that I want. I want it to look like the kind of show that I want to look like. I want, it, I want God to show up and perform in a way that makes me feel good and important because I am good and important. That's the way that Naaman responds to this. He, 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 somebody says, go take a bath, you'll be fine. And he's just like, no, I don't want to take a bath. I want, I want some bells and whistles, and I want some screaming and hoot, hooting and hollering, and I want the Benny Hinn treatment. Why don't I get that? It's interesting how one of the barriers to our transformation is our own privilege and entitlement. I'm an important person. Why aren't I being transformed like an important person? I deserve to have a show. I deserve to be treated in an important way. I deserve to be made much of. And what Naaman's transformation does is it says, you're just a person. You're just a person in need of healing, and it takes him down. God inspired, so his privilege and entitlement are holding him back from seeing how he could be possibly healed in the same way that other people are healed. It's the same way that, like, this happens all the time in the Maritimes, uh, where, I, where I grew up, where um, in the Maritimes, rich people would go to Boston for medical treatment, 
because they thought that it was better because they had to pay for it, which wasn't necessarily true. But they were like, well, it's b if you have to pay for something, it must be better, right? And, but it was, they were holding themselves back and just not wanting to do what the commoners were doing, right? So there's a silliness that prevents us from, from experiencing our healing. So it's interesting, though. As Naaman's leaving, he has some wise servants. He has wise people around him because Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Like, and I find this so fascinating, especially in my work with men when I was a social worker. If you told them to do a great thing, would you have done it? Like, if you said to Naaman, I want you to bring me the, 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 the left finger of 179 Egyptians, Naaman would have been like, okay, and he would have at least, he would have done it or died trying. Like, he would have been like, okay, this is the rules by which we have to play. He would have gone after it. And this is so interesting and because I've experienced this myself. When I was a social worker, I would work with dads uh, who were trying to get their kids back. And uh, they would have what's called a concurrent agreement, which was like a list of things that they had to do so that the judge would look at them and say, like, yes, you've done all these things. We think that your home is now safe for your children to, to go back with you. And the dads would be, like, so mad. And they would just be like a thing like, you have to have a job and you have to clean your house, and you have to, like, have a plan to get your children to school, either that you're going to buy a car and get insurance for that vehicle, or you're going to get a bus pass. But, there was, like, but they would see this list of to-dos, and they were like, blah, you know, and they were like, how dare they? They're trying to keep me down. And it was my job as a social worker to come in and be like, look, if the judge had said, I will give you your kids back if you go fight this bear... They would have done it. They would have done it in a second. It wasn't their loyalty or their willingness to, to look after their kids that was in doubt. But the idea of a list was so intimidating to them that they couldn't wrap their heads around it. And this prevented them, the simplicity of it, prevented them from experiencing what God, uh, the being a, a, a father to their children, in some ways prevented them from going through the whole system. But he says, and Naaman has this same idea. He wants to be a hero, and, uh, and, and Elisha gives him something mundane. But finally, he agrees to do it. How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down, and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. And as the man of God had told him, his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. His flesh was like that of a young boy. Um, very young, not like 13 or anything like that, because then your flesh gets all weird. And No offense, it's just a thing. But and This brings us to the last barrier, which we've seen play out through this entire story, that one of the major barriers to transformation is pride. There's so many areas where pride would have derailed this thing. The pride of Naaman saying, why would I listen to my, slave, uh, my wife's slave girl? The pride of the king of Aram saying, like, look, what, what are we going to go to Israel for healing? Like, we beat them in battle and have treaty with them. Why don't you just 
get some healing here. We'll bring someone in. The pride of uh, the king of Israel being like, well, if I don't have an answer to this question, then no one has an answer to this question. There's no possible imagination that I can find out of here. The pride of Naaman, when he gets to that point saying, like, if you're not going to treat me like an important person, then I'm not going to participate in your healing method. The pride of Naaman uh, saying that, that, he, that he won't, uh, that, that, that he wants to do something grand rather than something simple. And, and even the pride of Elisha saying that, like, I'm going to go out of my way to provide healing for someone who has oppressed my people and still currently enslaves them. Elisha doesn't let that get in the way of the work of the Lord, and Naaman is healed and changed and transformed. And Naaman's servants went to him and said, oh, sorry. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood here before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. And the prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. And this is interesting. So he turns down the gift. Elijah, Elijah wants nothing from this man. And this is where it starts to feel a little bit rude. It's like, not only am I not going to see you, I'm not going to take your gifts either. But he does, you know, it's sort of interesting how this plays out. If not, and then... This is a little bit separate from this current sermon, but I just find this to be a fascinating vignette at the end of this story. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. So may the Lord forgive your servant. So it, this is interesting. He wants to go back to his own country, and worship the God of Israel. And the only way that he can think to do with that is obviously I can't set up altars in, on the ground of my own country. I need to bring your dirt because like, he, he has a misunderstanding of how God works. But, but God is meeting him and he's like, fine, you can take some dirt. You know, like, but may the Lord forgive your servant this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. This is a really interesting vignette just because what Naaman is saying here is like, look, I want to worship your God and I want to give myself over to him fully, but the reality of my life is complicated and Sometimes I have to go places that I don't want to go, and sometimes I have to do things that I don't necessarily want to do. And in this case, my heart will not be bowing, but my body will be bowing. And in the midst of this, Elijah says, okay, fine, go in peace. I think that's so, such an interesting vignette. Sometimes in our desire to, of, of, in our desire as we speak to people of what Christianity looks like when they come to it, it has to look exactly like what we do. And people's lives are complicated. And I think it's so interesting how even in the Old Testament, God is making room for those who are distant from him to follow him. There's room for complexity in, in the meantime of, uh, as God works for our transformation and, and, and has provided Naaman with healing. But all of this points to this biggest fact that, that, that I think is really important for us to grasp as we work towards our transformation is that you are the biggest barrier to your own transformation. 
I am the biggest barrier to my own transformation. Sometimes we look at the external world and say, oh, it's too hard because of what's going on around us. It's too hard because of the media culture. It's too hard because of all of the things that I can't turn off. It's too hard because of the choices that I have. It's too hard because of external factors. Not understanding that the biggest barrier to our transformation into what God has called us to be is us. We are in control of whether or not we decide that protocol is important and deserves to be followed or not. We are the ones who decide that this is the way that we've always done things is a good answer. That is us holding ourselves back with the way that we interact with the world. We are in charge of our own imaginations. And the way that you avoid having a failure of imagination is that you fill yourselves up with stories of how God has worked in the past, both stories from his word and stories from other people you know, continually reminding you that like, oh, God shows up in amazing ways. God has showed up in this amazing way in my life. God has showed up in this amazing way in the lives of my friends. These are people that I know that have experienced healing and transformation. If you're having a failure of imagination, we fire up our imaginations together by telling these stories over and over and over again until we we understand that there literally is nothing our God cannot do. We don't just sing that for the good of our, for the so it can echo in the air. We sing that so we recognize it in our hearts. We are in charge of our own privilege and entitlement. We are in charge of whether or not we believe that we are people who deserve to be treated differently. We are. We are in charge of whether of how we see ourselves and do we come at the world and approach the world that we've been given with humility or with the last big one, pride, and we are the best ones at smashing our own pride or at least having your pride smashed. Because this is the thing. Your pride is going to get smashed by life. That's just the way that God works, right? We all know that. The challenge is, are you going to keep trying to prop up something that God is trying to tear down? We see so many people, I've seen so many people who like an incident happens that tears down their pride, that, that, that they, they had a massive and beautiful plan of how the world was going to work that would work independent of God's power and blessing and the whole thing gets destroyed and they recognize that like, wow, I need help, I need my brothers and sisters, I need my family, I need God to work within and, and, and in me and around me. And rather than accepting that, they instead try to patch together and duct tape and glue and nail together this pride again to be like, no, I still got it, right? It's still, it's still okay. Then God smashes it again and then they patch it together again and smashes it again. Rather than just allowing God to, to remove that from us, to remove that barrier where we're saying that salvation and healing needs to happen on my terms and in my ways rather than trusting that God is going to move. We are the biggest barrier to our transformation. Because as silly as it is to go rinse ourselves seven times in the Jordan River, and as, as silly as that would have been for Naaman, it's equally silly in our world to believe that this table makes a difference. It's equally silly in our world to believe that, that coming to this table, participating in this symbol, and receiving the grace and the peace that comes from Jesus truly makes a difference in our lives. 
that humbling ourselves and saying that I need something that I do not have on my own, that seems silly in our world as well. But yet we've been invited here. And we've been invited to, take, uh, to, to eat of this body and drink of this cup, to participate in the symbols of Jesus' salvation that is changing us now and for eternity. That's the invitation. So I would ask you, as we spend the next moments in silent prayer before we come to this table, that if you, that, 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 that you would pray that God would identify those barriers between you and your own transformation. That God would work in you to, to, to show you those things that you are doing to prevent your own healing, those, those walls that you've built up that are keeping him out. And that as we come to this table to experience his grace and his peace and his sacrifice, that we would find those walls being torn down so that we can truly experience all the healing that Jesus has for us. Let's pray together. God. We are thankful that you heal. And we pray that, that we would not understand or believe your healing is, is simply a thing that happens for other people or in other places, but that we would understand and believe truly that your healing is something that happens for us. And that we would expect nothing less. But that as we but but also that we would repent of any walls that we are building that are keeping us from the fullest realization of your healing, if, if we are, have pride that, that believes your healing can only happen in a certain way, if we, have, if we have a failure of imagination that imagines that our transformed self will only look one certain way, we ask that you would tear those things down and, and, and free us from our own shackles to be, to be given the freedom that we have in you.